It's not about can we do it. It was more about how we do it. I always expected people to say no. And then when someone said yes, I was like, what? <laughs> Actually, you want to do this? <laughs> I just had to keep putting one foot in front of the other. The whole world is like, what exactly have you smoked again? This is The Raise, where we take you behind the scenes into the capital raising journeys of startup founders. Some you may have heard of, others you need to hear about, and all of whom have been through it to close a raise. On the show, you'll learn how founders make the difficult decisions. Whether you're a founder yourself or you're simply interested in the fast-moving, innovative world of startups, this show is for you. I'm your host, Mylin Dang. I'm Managing Director of capital raising law firm Metis Law. For over a decade, I've worked with founders to raise capital so they can build businesses that make a lasting impact. Today, I have something very special for you. There's a lot of incredulity around startups. They appear to emerge from ground zero and become massively valuable entities at warp speed. In reality, the journey is usually one of very high highs and very low lows for many years. But occasionally, there are those startups that actually do it at lightning speed. If you've ever wondered how it's done, then you will want to hear the story of Josh Rogers, the CEO and founder of Mintrust. His vision resulted in one of the most innovative and exciting fintechs in crypto's booming DeFi sector, a lending and borrowing protocol with the user at its core. In just 18 months, it achieved in a bear market a valuation of a half billion US dollars, and it hasn't even launched yet. His journey is as unique as the protocol he created, and his battle stories are funny and poignant at the same time. It's a masterclass in how to get it right from the start, and it's not just about getting the right skills. It's as much about self-awareness and team culture as it is about expertise. In the first of this very special three-part episode, you'll hear how Josh went from the depths of a legal stash that abruptly killed his last startup to how he built out a team of industry heavyweights specifically to raise capital from interest and why he moved to Estonia to do it all in the first place. Let's dive in. Welcome to the show, Josh. Thank you so much, my Lynn. It's actually a complete pleasure to be here. It's been ages since you and I have actually had a chance to actually catch up. So it's a real pleasure to be here today. It has been too long and I'm really excited to have you on the show. Josh, your company is Mintrust. Can you give me your elevator pitch? The snapshot for non-crypto audience is we're building a bank for Bitcoin. So ostensibly, Mintrust is a money market. But really what it means is that it's what's called a fully collateralized money market. And what that means is that anyone that wants to borrow those actually needs to deposit collateral to do so. And the sector has really exploded in the last 12 months. About a year ago, the sector totally had about $500 million worth of locked assets. And now that number is $120 billion. The reason that that's actually become so significant is because any kind of maturing capital market needs to be able to price the use of an asset over time. And that's what interest is. But prior to DeFi, really the only way that you could benefit from crypto or token assets was through capital gains. And you couldn't leverage them in a way that was meaningful. And so that's completely and utterly changed. And the uptake and the shift that's occurring is really quite transformational. I'd like to explore that a little bit later on. My first question is, you've been involved in entrepreneurship and startups for 
over 25 years as a founder, investor, advisor, and mentor, you've got a really broad and unique perspective of the startup journey. What was your first business, Josh? My very first business was when I was 12, collecting golf balls on the golf ball dam. (laughs) (laughs) But my first startup was actually, I think, called Locomex. It was really a version of a thing called iPass. So this is back in 1996, and this is when people were spending vast amounts of money on telecommunication in hotels generally while they were traveling because they were logging into their VPN back home and then working with their laptop. And what had happened at that time was that there was a big global backbone provider called Sprint who'd come out with a VPN network that was brand new. So LocalNext was about how do you isolate both voice and data telecommunications, provide a global network that enables international travelers to be able to lock in at local rates and reduce that price point. So that was a long, long time ago. (laughs) (laughs) But that was really the first one. So Josh, what made you decide to get into business and become an entrepreneur? Because it's a difficult road. Yeah, look, you know what, I've only ever had one proper job. I worked as a Somalia in a restaurant, in a very expensive restaurant called Bilson's, right back in the very early 90s. And I did that for Mm -hmm. about 12 months. And I think that's my only proper job. I had promised I would never do another startup. And here I am doing another one. And I just think it's the character of an entrepreneur. There's somebody who, for whatever reason, within their personality, there's a drive to be able to do their own thing and to fulfill their vision that they can see. And then to bring other people, build and develop a team in order to fulfill on that vision. I just think that's a very entrepreneurial characteristic. I've been doing it ever since. And tech startups are just so exciting. And one of the fundamental reasons why is that when you're starting up a traditional business, like a restaurant, the answer is you pretty fundamentally know how to do it. Like there's tables and chairs and there's a menu and there's cashiers and there's kitchens and staff. And, you know, you fundamentally know how to do it. And whether you're doing kind of McDonald's all the way through to a three-star Michelin, there's already a fairly strong format for what works and why. One of the things about technology startups are now becoming more like that. In traditional startups, you're seeing existing models that do work. But in crypto and in blockchain, which is where I am now, it's a bit like you're building the very first restaurant in the history of the world. And people are walking past the building going, what's that weird space with all those tables and chairs? And then there's this sign out the front that says, give us cash and we'll give you grub. And you don't actually know why it doesn't work. And so for me, solving that puzzle is actually part of what makes it so exciting. Doing something in a new way, in a fresh new way, is part of actually solving the puzzle. But that's actually what makes startups so much more difficult in many ways than traditional businesses, because very often what you are creating, it's all about canvas. And you've got to be able to bring users onto that to interact with that white canvas, even though they may not have actually seen that before. And that's a really interesting challenge. When you're operating a new ecosystem like blockchain and crypto, how do you become the expert or the trusted person on that new subject matter? (laughs) The answer is work. (laughs) You do lots of work. I think you can't be unless you're passionate about it. One of the interesting things about crypto, it's really been a beneficiary of the whole coronavirus pandemic when everyone's been in lockdown and they're sitting at home going, well, what am I going to do? The data is on this. I don't know what the numbers are. Anecdotally, I'm aware of a very significant number of people who started to explore crypto. In my experience, it's what we call going down the rabbit hole. 
the further that you go down the rabbit hole, the more interesting it gets. Some of my team definitely went down the rabbit hole, which is why they've joined us, because they just fell in love with the whole idea so much. And they fell in love with its potential. Developing expertise, I think, is a function of passion. Anyone who is passionate about a particular subject finds becoming or developing expertise in that subject relatively easy. And that's what we're seeing in crypto as well. Which would you say was your most successful business to date and why? It was actually a Japanese marketplace platform back in the 2000s. It no longer exists, but I ran a digital agency, an advisory business in the 2000s. And we did a lot of work for Japanese and for Chinese customers. This was actually at the time was a marketplace that actually went really, really well in a particular kind of subsector of the Japanese market. I suppose from an investor perspective, there's things like in Australia, there's things like, you know, I was an investor in Freelancer and that did extremely well. Matt Barry, who was the CEO of that, uh, did an extraordinary job in taking that really from what was a very small business into uh, something that became quite significant. I got enormous value out of mentoring Rebecca Campbell in her business, which eventually became Hey You. Rebecca literally came and saw me on the day that she started her business called Posse. And then that went through a seven-year evolution And I was mentoring her through that entire period as well. But just when I sold my advisory business, I became more of an investor mentor rather than actually a founder. And so for me, it's exciting to be back, right, back into, you know, founding businesses and founding interests. So that's come full circle again, I suppose one could say. Josh, you mentioned to me the last time we spoke a story about a major setback in one of your last startups that resulted in a legal stuff that you didn't know you were actually involved in. Are you able to elaborate on what you learned from that experience? Yeah, absolutely. I was putting out a business called Candid, which is actually was going to end up having a blockchain footprint. So Candid was in the employment sector, putting together a very complex refinancing, which also linked in with a fundraising. And it was quite significant and taken some months to actually put together. It was also delayed. On the day that that settlement occurred, three hours prior, my ex-wife decided to put a caveat on my company to prevent it from happening. And without getting into the details of it, I found the experience extremely traumatic. I don't think I've ever really suffered what I'd call trauma in my life until that point. And that really devastated me. It devastated me financially and emotionally in ways that are really, that were very, very significant. And having to crawl out of that dark hole, so to speak, I tried to fight on as long as I possibly could with Canada, but I was in the middle of a legal stash, as you're saying, and the idea of creating something when you're in a war is just not possible. So, you know, I had 17 people who ended up having to do other things. The entire business got shut down and benched. There's all the kind of personal embarrassment, I suppose, and one could say shame of that because you've got this vision and future that you're excited about. And suddenly that's gone. And it was a very difficult, very, very tough period to get through. Extremely difficult. The funny thing is, at the time, I said, you know, I had complaints about unfairness and all kinds of stuff. If you'd been speaking to me during that period, you would have been speaking to a very different human being. But interestingly enough, where I've actually ended up is far more interesting for me and far stronger than where I actually was a couple of years ago. And really that is, is because what it took for me to actually really dig myself out of that situation really had me be who I am today. 
And that really is the foundation of why Mintress has come about. Not just Mintress, but other things in my life have really emerged. Every single startup has this moment. And every startup in my experience goes through a break and break through moment. And that was a real break moment that broke me. It broke the business. But it was a real breakthrough moment in terms of what then came after and what it then allowed for. The lessons I've learned from it is never give up. But boy, I learned it at another level. I really did. Tenacity is key, but I really did get a whole new cut in terms of my own ability to recreate from nothing. And I really did have to do that. What did that look like, Josh? How did you get out of the dumps? I had all of my assets and income locked up, right, basically by like a legal case. And on the day that that happened, I had $4,000 in the bank and I had a business that cost me $100,000 a month. And from my perspective, I'd had that actually inflicted upon me by a person that I regarded as my family. My ex-wife and I weren't necessarily, we had our moments, but we had what I thought was a great working relationship and especially it included my kids. And suddenly this person came after me in a way that I regarded as extremely vicious and relentless, didn't stop. So what that looked like is I had to figure out, I'm not a guy with a job. I had to figure out how do I actually sustain myself? How do I find the income to be able to defend this position? And how do I survive and keep going? And all of that was a really confronting thing for me to do because I had to do that, I don't think, in probably two decades. I'm in my early 50s and it's like, I've done this in my 20s, but I haven't done it for a very, very long time. And now I've got to really deliver on what I say. I tell other people that they've got to be able to get up off the mat. And now I've got to go and do that. So part of that is it's a very humbling experience. And you've just got to chew humble pie. You've got to take responsibility for it. You've got to put it behind you as quickly as you can. What's so damaging is to get caught up in a legal work that just continues or get it all get caught up in a, in a mental environment that doesn't enable you to create. And I could just see that that was going to be difficult. And then the other thing is, is that just given the nature of my work, I've got people who seek out my advice and there were people in Europe and also in Dubai who reached out, you know, for, through various parties, I ended up doing some consulting work too, and that got me off the ground. One of the members of my current Mintress team, who I knew, that I did not know terribly well at the time, and we've since become incredibly close, but one of my members of my Mitra's team was willing to back me, and to a very significant degree, until my own funding was actually able to actually come through. That kind of trust for someone to step up and just say, go, and to do it on a handshake agreement, really. I don't, you know, you know this is a man called David Oljan, and David's my CFO. He just said, Josh, I'll write the checks. You pay me when you can. Give me some tokens in the project, whatever you think is worthwhile. And was, the whole thing was done on a handshake. There was no documentation, no nothing. And I can say to you that Mintress would not be where it is today without David. Those sorts of events don't happen until you actually go through the washing machine and kind of clean out all of the dirty laundry. You must do that. So I'm forever grateful to David. He's also a dear friend of mine and someone I work with on a daily day, on a daily basis now. Sometimes you've got to be lucky, but part of that, causing and creating that luck, is taking responsibility for the hole you're in and getting yourself out of it. So how did you go from that situation, you know, the last startup falling over and the legal stoush, to coming up with the idea of Mintrust? I've been fascinated with blockchain for quite some time, 
And I really had a good look at it in 2017 when it went through a very significant boom of what I know as ICOs, which is an initial coin offering. And it was, it's a mechanism or a way of raising money. And the reason why that interests me as a founder is that inherent in being able to build out a startup is how do you get access to investor capital? So here's all this investor capital, there's billions of dollars of it, and it all looked pretty easy. These things that are called a white paper, and the white paper is really a description, a fairly technical description of how you're going to build out your blockchain project. And these white papers that I was looking at were pretty flimsy in my view, and the models that they were going to build and develop out, I thought were mostly like rubbish. And what I mean by rubbish is that they just didn't fit within a within a platform architecture that would actually sustain them. But but the point was, it's like, well, that's very attractive. We could go and put a project together and get a whole lot of investor funding, but that's not the right place to come from. The right place to come from is you've got something extraordinary that you're wanting to build and it fits into pre-existing like uh, investor uh, population. And the problem I had in 2017 is I couldn't see any depth. I could see this bubble and this opportunity to actually raise money. But when that bubble disappeared, where did you fit? And at the time, I was struggling to actually get long-term use case. Like, what's a long-term blockchain user case? And that was still developing. So how Mintress really got formed was I, I went on a holiday to Zanzibar at the start of last year, and the Tanzanian government, in its wisdom, decided to shut down all flights, both in and out of the country, for about four months. So I got caught in Zanzibar during lockdown, the first lockdown, which is not a bad place to do it, yeah. <laughs> except that it was also during wet season and also during Ramadan, and there literally wasn't anyone <laughs> on the island, right? It's incredibly, like, it got really boring because right. the whole place just got shut down. So there's nothing to do. And I really spent a lot of that time digging into blockchain. And what happened was that a business called Compound, it's a very, very successful business, one I deeply respect, it launched its token in May last year. And in doing so, it really brought forth a real breakthrough in the kind of models that these sort of decentralized financial protocols could actually utilize to attract users onto them. And that mechanism in the sector is called liquidity mining. And their liquidity mining architecture was a real breakthrough and a really piqued my interest. And literally, I don't say this arrogantly, but literally within 10 minutes of actually getting across Compound's model, it's like, oh, this is a real breakthrough in terms of the appeal and the use case inside of crypto. The other thing that became apparent, not just with Compound, but also with some of the other majors in the sector, was that from my perspective, their models were incomplete and there were things that were left on the table. A better version of what they were doing could be built. And that was really where Mintress came from. Josh, you have quite a heavyweight leadership team on your team at Mintress. Who was your first team member? The first team member was actually our CTO, Dennis. But the first, on a, let's say, C-level at that time, Dennis is, has moved into our C-level team since he started. He joined really as a tech lead, and he's quite extraordinary capability. So he's become our full-time CTO. But prior to that was a man called Yuri Van Gielen, and then sh- very shortly after, uh, Matthew Nemo. So Yuri used to be the head for Asia-Pacific of Prism Group, and Prism arguably the world's leading economic auditors in blockchain. And they do a a huge amount of work with significant projects, including like IBM is a customer of theirs. And they've got a world-class reputation. And Yuri and I were introduced by a friend of mine in Estonia, 
So one of the things that happened is I ended up moving to Estonia really after lockdown. And I did that in order to build out Minterest. And a friend here introduced me to Yuri, and we literally had a bromance within kind of the first half an hour. We just <laughs> really liked each other. You know, we had a, a similar set of values, similar sort of vision about what blockchain could actually deliver for the world, you know, what its future could look like. And he really, really loved the whole model of Minterest and its key purpose. He really fell in love with that quickly. So Yuri comes with an extraordinary network. It's a very, very valuable thing as a founder to have. He's literally the first person, if you're going to be building out a very significant project into a new sector, having someone who already knows everybody in that sector and brings with them a reputation that's deeply respected and, and is someone who's genuinely well-liked is very valuable. I mean, it's not the only reason. I really like, I really, I mean, Yuri and I are still incredibly close today. Did you deliberately go out seeking someone with those skills or was it just a coincidence that you met Yuri and he had those skills? It was a happy coincidence anyway, but the answer is the two things I was really seeking early on was I already had a team of five who were in the development team. So I had an initial coding team of five. Now, the issue in terms of fundraising is I needed people who could assist me with that process, who would actually take pressure off the dev team, but having other people assist in the fundraising that would be necessary for the business who then also took the pressure off the existing team so they could focus on just doing the delivery component. For me, that was essential. You know, one of the things I understand about fundraising is it's extremely dominating on existing team members and, and in terms of their ability to continue to deliver on the needed outcomes of the business. So I really was seeking two people who could partner with me. One of those would be what was really someone who had really great industry sector. And the other one was technical having someone who has deep technical expertise in the space and who could really bring that deep technical expertise, not just for fundraising, but also into the business itself and really assist in terms of the development of its architecture. And so that was Matthew Nemo. And Matthew is the CEO and co-founder of Aleph Zero. And Aleph Zero itself is a standalone sovereign blockchain network. They're actually very, very close, I believe, in the next few weeks. They're actually looking to launch their own mainnet and Matthew is literally smarter than a tree full of owls. Matthew's got enormous experience in blockchain, goes back to 2014, and he really is a key specialist in cross-chain architecture. And the thing to understand also is that people come in in phases. Yuri and Matthew were literally extraordinary in their commitment through the whole private fundraising round. And in doing so, we're able to build out the rest of the team, right, and keep them isolated from that process. We actually then built out our advisory team as well. So brought on people like David Post. David's the managing director of, current managing director of Chainlink, which is the largest pricing oracle business in the game. Uh, very, very well regarded. So David's also an advisor. Simon Schwerin, who comes from Economy Partners, who are leading blockchain think tank. Again, he came on. Mark Fitzgibbon, Mark's got stunning operational experience, much more like hands-on focus. Now, he participates in strategy for sure. But Mark also brings a, a really strong raft of skills that are just straight up and down operational. And so a lot of those advisors are heavily involved in the actual strategic design and the actual fulfillment of that fundraising process. And as you move through that, it tends to lighten out for them. They, they move more into a, a normal strategic advisory role. And the reason why is that we're able to then backfill the capability to our own team. As you're bringing more and more people on, some of the capability that the advisors 
bring to the business and which requires enormous amount of time from them starts to lighten up. And by the way, as it should, because that then makes their role sustainable. I love the fact that you've been involved in startups and fundraising for such a long time and yet you brought in these experts to help you with the fundraising process. What sort of advice can you give to other startups who are looking to bring on advisors to help through the fundraising process? Because there are so many people out there shopping their wares and it can be fraught with danger, especially for startups that short on cash. Totally. Look, when it comes to fundraising, there's a couple of pearls of wisdom right? So when it comes to advisors, this is the danger sign. So one of the things is, is that you're looking for specific expertise in in specific areas. What happens in startups is that there's a lot of ex-participants who have what I call fireside wisdom. So fireside wisdom is like you're told these rollicking stories, but fireside wisdom is sort of rollicking stories of what worked. And so the viewpoint about what works actually in a startup is based on anecdotal evidence. It's actually on their experience. The thing I understand from my background is that that startups run by a particular playbook. And the playbook is one of the digital platform. And there's a digital platform architecture and a design, and there is a playbook. And I didn't write the playbook. The playbook has been formed literally over the last 18 years. It was initially defined in 2003 by two French economists called Rocher and Troll. And it's since been developed right out by both world-class academia and also hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of examples now of platform businesses that play into the playbook. So understanding that playbook is key. And if you've got advisors who understand that, that's really valuable because then it's not just about the anecdotal story called, hey, I did this, and so therefore you guys should do that. Experience is valuable, but being able to distinguish the true why of why something worked and why something didn't is pretty important. And especially when you've got advisors that understand that or contribute and add value because they're able to do so from the needs of what the actual business, the startup that you're building has. Every startup is different and the nuances that it requires are different. And so it's about having advisors that can bring value into that kind of the existing framework that you have. And you're wanting advisors not to fill a seat. Often you'll see startups have advisors because they think it looks good in a fundraising document, right? And in order to fill a seat, that's a complete waste of everybody's time. And it almost always is counterproductive. You really are searching for people who can add true value to the business. And the key thing about it is you have to be willing to spend time and effort really sifting through and ensuring that the people that you're getting are the very best you think you can and who are going to contribute to the business long-term. You've said there's a lot of people out there who put their hands up for advisory roles. It's about actually distilling through that availability for people who truly understand what startups are about and not necessarily just have kind of anecdotal experience. It doesn't necessarily apply to what you're doing. So Josh, Mintress raised six and a half mil US in September. Was this the first raise that you had done for Mintress? We actually closed the raise prior, but what happened was that we have to go through what's called you know, a KYC process that's quite protracted. It took a couple of months. Mm-hmm. I've just written a blog on the actual fundraising process itself. I just published it yesterday, Mylin. It's a fairly detailed document that covers the strategy, the strategic thinking behind that actual fundraising process. I mean, I'm happy to share it with your listeners if they find it interesting. Yeah, we'll include it in our show notes for sure. I have read it. 
Oh, great. Okay. I'm glad I did because there are quite a few things that I was going to ask you today, which you actually addressed. Well, that, that makes it convenient. One of the key things in that was that we made a decision fairly early on to have what we call a village of supporters. So rather than going to three or four investors who would actually take out the whole round, we made a conscious decision to do something that took more work, but we think delivers to the business significantly more value. And that is, is to have a real portfolio, a real village. I think we have something like 40, more than 40 investors in the business and something like 37 or 38 of them are true venture capitalists. The thing to understand is, is that those 40 investors are the 40 investors that fit the profile that we were seeking form interest. And in order to get to that 40, we did something like 150 pitches to separate VCs. And then we went and did our own due diligence on each of those venture capital firms to ensure that they had the kind of characteristics that we were seeking for investors in interest. That judgment wasn't like a good or bad judgment at all. There were many, many of those in another kind of project just didn't simply, for whatever reason, didn't fit the kind of profile that we were seeking. So that's a very intensive, very extensive program to undertake. It's something that Yuri and Matthew were instrumental in, but it's also something that you're bringing in your advisors to help support as well. And that program ran for about three months. I think, as I mentioned in that blog, we literally had full commitments. We had soft commitments for the entire round in the first five days, but we ran it for three months to really get that. And that's one of the points that that's difficult for traditional startups, and especially early stage traditional startups. I bring some kind of confidence to shareholders given my track record. But when you look at early stage startups, it's very often difficult to be able to just not just take the money. When you're in the kind of business that we were, and especially in crypto right now, which is extremely strong in terms of, of having access to money, we were in a fortunate position of being able to decide who we took that money from. That has proven to be exactly the right decision. So there's a lot of strategic thought that goes on into the design of a fundraising process. And by the way, it evolves. So along the way, you start where you think, like this is a good idea, and then along the way, you're evolving that strategy. And I suppose one of the funny things is, and I think I've said this to you, and I don't want to get into a big diatribe about the negatives of fundraising in places like Australia. One of the things that is difficult is that when you're looking at capital markets, you know, where's the depth? The depth of capital markets globally is quite significant. And if you're an early stage startup and you've got a great idea and you're clear you're not just one of many, but what you're doing is actually quite distinguished and it really does have its own clear space into which it can emerge and grow. One of the hard decisions to make is, are you in the right capital market in order to be able to fund that business? If you're based in Australia, like I was for a long time, I would say the answer is no. And I would say it's categorically, you can argue that with COVID, the world's become a global environment, and that's true. But when you're wanting to build out development teams and you're wanting to bring in expertise, Australia's a long way away. One of the mistakes I've made in my career is I didn't leave a long time ago. And the reason why is that there are flourishing startups in Australia, but if you want to build something global, that's a very tough place to do it. And I, I mentioned the same situation as well, my then in New Zealand, and just simply because the, the actual size of those capital markets is so constrained. When you're looking at, at the United States, obviously that's enormous. But when you're looking at places like Europe, the Middle East, 
you know, our Emirates, et cetera, et cetera, that the sheer depth of those capital markets means that your ability to secure funding and in a way that really empowers the business is just significantly greater. But more importantly, your ability to be able to hire high caliber, world-class people at the right price who come with a next level work ethic built into their DNA, that is transformative for the business. It's transformative. And one of the reasons I moved and decided to build Pinterest in Estonia is because of that. It's a country with 1.3 million people and it has, I think it's coming up to its eighth unicorn. Mm, wow. You know, it has more unicorns per capita in the world than anywhere else. Most of those founders local or are they international now sort of congregating in Estonia? They all started here. And so what you have is a small city of like half a million people, but there's some incredible advantages to it. One of them is, is that you can get to everybody. Your ability to network inside of Tallinn is quite extraordinary. But the thing that I didn't realize until I came here is that, yeah, okay, there's a great kind of solid talent base in terms of the Estonians. But the other thing is, is that you can use the people in, the, in Ukraine and Belarus and Russia because of the issues that are occurring in all three of those countries, really want to move into Europe and they really want to come to Estonia. And the cost structure in order to do that is measured in fractions of what occurs in Australia. And that is key. At the end of the day, having a good idea is one thing and having nice technology. Fundamentally, any business, any technology business is about people. And how do you build a team? And building a team is a whole different conversation. But how do you then initiate the team? How do you bring on very high caliber people who do who have actually developed their own expertise at a world-class level? And the answer is, is places like Ukraine and Belarus and Russia are densely populated with exactly those kinds of people who are seeking opportunities in Europe. And for me, Estonia was, it was like a dream come true. It was like, oh my God. Like, this is remarkable. It was certainly something I hadn't seen. I'm not saying that applies to all startups at all. And nor am I saying that everybody in Australia or New Zealand should necessarily, who's in a startup should necessarily move to Estonia. But it certainly, it certainly, it was fundamental enough for me to move here permanently. It was a real awakening. So where you're based is actually a key decision. There's so much in your answer that I want to unpack. Can you talk me through how you went about identifying the investors that you wanted to target? So the answer is a lot of that work came off Yuri's desk. He had significant input into that. He brought with him extraordinary understanding of the space. We certainly didn't start off with a hit list, say 50. But what happens is one of the things that I wrote about in that blog is my experience of crypto VCs is profoundly, profoundly different to that of traditional startup VCs. Now, traditional startup VCs, I find, pretty difficult to deal with generally now you know it's a generalization but pretty difficult it's not a pleasant experience generally that is just not the case in crypto at all like it, it's an actual pleasure the whole thing it's actually exciting and thrilling there's an aspect of fun to it dealing with people who are generally passionate about the sector proud to be in it in my experience like super smart right because crypto in itself is kind of a sieve you actually have to go and do some work to figure it all out so they tend to be highly intelligent, ask really great questions. I found the entire experience really enjoyable. I really enjoyed our fundraising. I can tell you that is not my experience about fundraising generally. It's pretty much a grind. But really the investor list came initially from Yuri. He really drove that. But then along the way, what actually happened, which also surprised me, is the list just exponentially grew out because the people we were speaking to would say, hey, 
We love it, but you should also speak to these three guys and we will make the introduction for you. And that was unique for me. It was unique that the actual people that we were pitching to were also opening the door up to others. There's this real mindset inside of crypto of abundance and that we're all in this together. And it really changed my experience of fundraising because so many of our investors that are actually investors with us now did come from people that we were pitching to who made those introductions for us. Incredibly valuable for a business like ours. And those investors that you ended up taking on, where were they based? Were they European or US? It's a global footprint. It's a real mix. One of the criteria for us was that we were seeking global footprint in terms of community. So we've got investors like in China, South Korea, Japan, right throughout Southeast Asia, Vietnam, across the Indian subcontinent, right through into the Middle East, South America, Africa, believe it or not, and also right throughout Europe and the United States. So there was a geographical footprint, so to speak, even though it's an online world, you've got these investors who whose communities are culturally associated with a particular geography. And so we wanted a global footprint in terms of that. That was one of the things that we were seeking. And then on top of that, it was what are called liquidity providers. Do we have investors who actually supply liquidity to protocols like ours? That was another thing that we were seeking. And then the other one was just general expertise as well. We've got investors who have teams of what are called quants, basically genius mathematicians on their team. We could use that and use that resource and they were willing for us to, to tap into their team to kind of cross audit our own internal data science work. So there are a whole range of little criteria, but what we were always seeking was value add. How does this person or how does this investor group bring value add to the entire portfolio of investors? It was very methodically mapped out. But again, that was really a function of a disciplined program. And I did mention this as well in the blog, and that is that we chose not to have a lead. We had numerous investors offer it. But the reason we didn't was because we had a very clear idea of the way that the investor table was going to look. And that didn't necessarily align with how VC leads prefer to do that kind of work. And also we had an experienced team that, you know, we had the confidence that we could do that without a lead. It does take more work to do it. But again, it was always about how do we deliver what we believe is the best outcome for the business. Josh, thanks for joining me for the first part of our conversation. I can't wait to continue our chat in the next episode. You've just heard a fascinating account of the genesis of a successful startup, but the story doesn't end here. Subscribe to listen to the next episode in the series for insights into Josh's view on the one thing that every founder must know to be successful. It really will have you see the development of your startup through a whole new lens. You've been listening to The Raise, a show that takes you behind the scenes into founder stories about capital raising. This podcast is brought to you by Termsheet Guru, a product from the expert team at Metis Law. Create kick-ass capital raising term sheets with Termsheet Guru and learn how to negotiate term sheets with confidence. To find out more, head to the website termsheet.guru. That's T-E-R-M-S-H-E-E-T dot G-U-R-U. To make sure you don't miss an episode of The Raise, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Mylin Dang, and we'll be back next episode with another deep dive into a founder's capital raising story.